Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Jose Angel Gutierrez to discuss his book, The Eagle Has Eyes, the FBI's surveillance of Cesar Estrada Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union of America, 1965 to 1975. Thanks for tuning in. The Eagle Has Eyes is the first book of its kind to bring transparency to the FBI's attempts to destroy the incipient Chicano movement of the 1960s. The role of the U.S. government in suppressing marginalized racial and ethnic minorities began to be documented with the advent of the Freedom of Information Act, and the book utilizes declassified files from the FBI to investigate the agency's role in thwarting the efforts of Cesar Chavez to build a labor union for farm workers. The book also documents the roles of the FBI, California State Police, and local police in assisting those who oppose Chavez. In the words of Eloy Garcia, the book masterfully connects the dots of U.S. government surveillance, helping us understand the cowed public silence and the present perilous era of the Orwellian national security matrix. I'm excited today to be joined by Jose Angel Gutierrez, author of The Eagle Has Eyes and many other books documenting the Chicano movement, all of which are informed by his prominent role as a leader and community organizer. Gutierrez is Professor Emeritus of the University of Texas at Arlington, where he founded the Center for Mexican-American Studies. He maintains a law practice and is the president of the Greater Dallas Legal and Community Development Foundation. Professor Gutierrez, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you and doing this podcast. It's great to be able to market the books and publicize them. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you about your work. You've published a few books with MSU Press. One of the others, Tracking King Tiger, also deals with FBI surveillance of a prominent Chicano leader, Reyes Lopez Tijarina. How did FBI surveillance become so central to your scholarly publications on the Chicano movement? Well, it's quite uh, personal and political. You know, back in 1976, uh, we were in the heyday of, of, of an alternative political party that I had founded, La Raza Unida. And uh, a candidate for governor in Texas, Ramsey Muniz, was charged with the possession of drugs and all kinds of conspiracies and things of that sort. And he insisted uh, on us that uh, he was being framed for all this. We had seen that tactic in the past where candidates from the Raza Unida Party would be charged with crimes only to have them dismissed after the election, which they would lose because of the bad publicity and, and all that. And it was also a drain on our resources. For example, we had an entire chapter of the Rasta Unida Party in New Mexico, an entire group, 40-some-odd people charged with crime. <laughs> and that one, the, the story gets a little better. We were able in trial to prove that the sheriff uh, of that county had planted the drugs and got him indicted and convicted and sentenced to prison. The problem was that within six, seven months of him being in prison, because he was a Democrat, the Democrat governor pardoned him, and he came back out, ran again against us, and became the state senator. <laughs> so, so this this uh, experience of having surveillance and, and crimes alleged to, to have been committed by us prompted uh, us to look at the Freedom of Information Act that just got teeth at that time. You know, we've had kind of access to government documents, but no no compelling and and, and sanction if the government didn't respond in time. So. We started filing records to, to prove the innocence of Ramsey Muniz. And then I just continued as a lifetime habit to, to keep doing this. Now, 
the easy way of explaining uh, the access to government documents is you can get a person's uh, notarized statement authorizing you to get those records if they exist, or at least even ask for them. Or you wait until a person is dead, uh, and then you send in the obituary and asking for those records if they exist. So those are the two ways that, that you can do this. It gets complicated because, for example, if you want to ask for oh, records of the, say, American Civil Liberty Union or National Lawyers Guild or the National Council of La Raza, you've got to have a notarized statement from an officer recognizing you as a member. So, you know, it gets complicated. But I just weathered through all the pitfalls and problems and delays and expense because it's expensive. <clears throat> they take forever to respond. And then they scare you to death by saying, are you willing to pay thousands to do the computer searches to see if we can find any records? And you had to say yes to all of this. Otherwise, it just stops right there. So so you began collecting as a result of the accusations level that members of La Raza Unida that you were working with. Did you experience surveillance yourself? Oh, absolutely. There were posters back in the, the day when, you know, we would protest one thing or another, particularly the Vietnam War. And there was always people saying, oh, they're watching us or my phone is tapped or, you know, somebody broke into my, my office, my car, my house. You always heard that. And the posters would say, I'm not paranoid just because I think they're following me or something along those lines. So, you know, we kind of made light of the fact that, that this was going on. We were not as informed as we are today of the extent of this surveillance. But I had the, what I just reported, you know, funny things happening with my phone my car being broken into and only my address book missing, uh, my house broken into and only files you know, from the, from the cabinets. We used to have hard files then, not computer disks. When we had meetings, we would see people taking photographs of us and photographs of our license plates on our cars. So we did know that this was occurring. And yes, I ended up getting quite a few thousands of pages on me from various entities. What prompted that was not so much the FBI, or the CIA, but IRS. IRS got after me for about seven years in a row, wanting to audit my records. You know, and there was never any fraud or any kind of you know cheating going on. It's just harassment, and, and that started with Nixon. Uh, he's the first one to use that we know of the IRS to target political enemies. It's interesting that you talk about the role of the IRS and the relationship between them and the FBI. I was also thinking about some of the experiences you were talking about. Um, you know, on the ground locally. Could you talk about the, just from a kind of general level, what, what is your take on the role of the FBI and other agencies in this kind of surveillance? You know, this, this field of study uh, of the intelligence community has been growing since 9-11, post 9-11. We have a whole genre of national security studies. And there's big bucks that the government is willing to pay grants uh, for universities, but, but they want to recruit intelligence officers, intelligence analysts. I think that prostitution is not the oldest profession. I think spying is the oldest profession because humankind has always been fighting one another forever and its way to fight is engage in some sort of surveillance and spying, looking and monitoring in order to be able to prevail in any kind of battle. So I think this is just a lifelong kind of practice that goes along with kings or dictators or democracies or republics or any government. And it, it leads to an ethical and political question of whether the first role of government is to preserve government, as opposed to the first role of government is to serve the people. 
Now, the rhetoric is that it's supposed to serve the people, <laughs> but it can't serve the people if it doesn't exist. Now, once we got past the Second World War and we got into the Cold War, uh, the reason it's called coal is because it's more about a battle of ideas and ideology as opposed to bombs and bullets. So from then on, the, the intelligence agencies proliferated. You know, the newest one we have here is of last couple of years ago is the Homeland Security. That's a new one. So, you know, we have about 17 uh, intelligence agencies, not counting the ones that are in the military branches. Every military branch has an intelligence agency except the Marines because they're a subset of the Navy. So there's a lot of groups out there whose mission is, as a government agency, to gather intelligence. That leads to a lot of problems. First of all, budget. They consume a lot of money unnecessarily. They duplicate a lot of effort. We've had uh, a lot of uh, recent revelations that we, we should have known and we did know about 9-11, just like we, we should have known and didn't know about the bombing of Pearl Harbor uh, and so on. And, and it's probably true because the, they don't share. In order to increase the budget, the FBI is not going to tell the CIA what they're doing, regardless that the charters are opposite. You know, the CIA does things outside of the country. The FBI does things inside the country, but they don't. They both do inside and outside. <laughs> the FBI's got an officer in every U.S. embassy in the in the world, and they're not called FBI agents. They're called uh, they're called the legat, the the liaison d'affaires. You touched on something that I think really shows in the the documents that you use in the Eagle Has Eyes, which is the degree to which these aren't necessarily coordinated efforts. So you sort of have to piece together what some group or individual was doing at any given time and to try to figure out you know, what, what they were trying to get after or what effect they might have had on the work you were trying to do. Well, the, the most striking thing about all of this is an issue of civil rights and, and constitutional rights. They be looking for criminal activity, activity that is treasonous, activity that is against the security and the national interest of the country, uh, and so on. But that's not what they do. They interpret dissent, disagreement, protest as being un-American, therefore suspect and possible uh, against the national interest of the United States. And, and, and Betty Metzger, uh, in a book called The Burglary, uh, has proven that. Just group of people who were against the war in Vietnam, that they were being surveilled because of their political views, not because they were breaking the law. It's, it's not against the law to, to protest and dissent and, and say things, you know, uh, even marching and, and picketing. Uh, it's not. So they decided to go raid the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. That was the name of the, the, the city. And they broke into the FBI office and stole the files. About 90% of the files that they took out of that media Pennsylvania FBI office had to do with political investigations and nothing with, with crime. You know, because the FBI is supposed to be going after bank robbers and kidnappers. Even the bombings, they're not supposed to be going after the bombings. That's the alcohol, arms, and tobacco people, you know, somebody else. So they were not doing their work, as their mission statement says. Now, this group of people began circulating uh, these documents to the major outlets of the press, the Washington Post, the Times. They leaked them out to show that the government is doing bad things. 
Uh, and that's what got me into the Chavez uh, book. I think now would be a good time to turn to the Chavez material because it's a good uh, way of talking about how these things instantiate in a particular person. So Cesar Chavez is considered one of the four horsemen of the Chicano movement, a list that includes uh, yourself and Corky Gonzalez and Reyes Lopez Tijerina. Would you talk a little bit about your relationship to Chavez and how he became the subject for this particular book? Yeah, well, we knew each other. You know, we were comrade in arms, if you will. I mean, he was in California. That was one of the problems of the Chicano movement, as all civil rights movements of that era. We were very regionalized. Everybody did their own thing in their own area, and the only kind of happenstance learned about each other. Uh, the national media was not reporting on, on us uh, then any more than it reports on us now. The big lit and the major newspapers and, and magazines of the country have this uh, one bashed head per column inch that if there's violence and hurt, then they'll give you a column inch on that story. Otherwise, no. So our visits had to be personal. And whenever we would have gatherings, we got along really well. Now, Chavez insisted that he was a, a national Kennedy Democrat and that he could not help us with the rest of the party, but he agreed that he would campaign in nonpartisan elections. Well, that was a good for us, <clears throat> and he did. You know, he, uh, he came to Texas and New Mexico and, other, and, and Colorado and other places, and Michigan as well, uh, helping us with the candidates for the rest of the party and events that we would have. And he did the same thing uh, in, in California uh, somewhat, except that he carved out the Coachella Valley and said, don't organize here. <laughs> because that's where he had his base. Now, that was a mistake on his part, exactly who he complained about, the local police uh, hurting him. And had we done political work, electoral political work, taken over the cities, we would control the police. But he didn't want to. <clears throat> so we got along really well uh, in, in that regard. And then Jager uh, wrote a, an article one time. He was a journalist. And he wrote asking for files on Chavez, and he got some. And he concluded that, you know, it was just a waste of tax money and if they didn't find anybody on the part of Chavez. And, and I laughed when I read that. I said, well, they weren't looking for crime, for God's sake. They were trying to destroy him and discredit him, neutralize him, you know. And that all, all came out once we started looking at the counterintelligence programs, the COINTELPRO documents. Uh, that's exactly what it says. That the purpose of all this surveillance is to destroy, neutralize, discredit, disrupt, and so on, the, the organizations and, and leaders. So I laughed and said, oh, man, the street got it all. Uh, one of these days, I'm going about this. Well, I, I didn't have time. That's, that's the problem with uh, being a, a four-year foundation executive. You know, I had time to, to write this book until later when I said, you know, I'm going to make time. I just have to do this because I, I would look at my garage and I would see this mountain of boxes of FBF files that I've been collecting and collecting and collecting and not doing a thing with them. So that's how I got into writing something about Chavez is I was going to show that it wasn't about trying to find crime. It was trying to destroy him at all levels. Yeah. So can we can we get into that a little more specifically? When did the FBI first take notice of Chavez and his activities? Well, there's two two facets to, to this question of yours. Uh, one is somebody uh, back when recommended uh, that, you know, they co-opt Chavez and offer him some job with the Peace Corps. So anytime, anytime you're considered um, 
to be uh, nominated or, or considered for any federal job of importance, you got to go through an FBI check. So that's one story. The other story is, you know, the, the growers in California, and remind, we've had several presidents from California, okay? And, and the Department of Justice, which is where the FBI is, works for that president. So they didn't want Chavez to be doing what he was doing and unionizing agricultural labor and succeeding, because he was. I mean, there have been other efforts in the past that were not as successful as he was. And he was successful because of his international boycotts of, pro of products. And he had this vast army of volunteers, including class housewives uh, who were not farm workers or Mexican, but they were concerned about pesticides in the environment and things of that sort. He was very able to put together a lot of dots to make sense for people. So he was, he was being successful. That's why they were wanting to stop him. And they started investigating. Now, uh, consider this. Let, let's say that uh, uh, Nilberger is considered to run the, the National Endowment for the Humanities. Well, the major name surfaces, they'll go to your employers, current and, and past. They'll go to your neighbors. They'll go to your religious leaders. They'll go to friends of yours. They'll go to other people. And they won't tell them that they're looking to see if you will become the nominee for the NEH. They'll just ask them, what do they think about your character? Do they know anything about you and your family relationships and your, your, the way you behave and the way you are? Can you imagine what your neighbors think <laughs> when there's an FBI agent asking about you? That's enough to character assassinate you right then and there. Because uh, they're also pledged to not say anything about this visit. They can't tell you, hey, Kurt, I got a visit from the FBI. Yeah? There's a lot of initial steps that are taken that already discredit you and, and put a question mark on you, especially your employer. Uh, and that's that's the other explanation because they did come checking at, at the, the lumber yard working uh, as he was trying to organize uh, farm workers because you know he, he didn't have any money. He quit the, the, the well-paid job that he had with community services organization. Believe it or not, Chavez at one time wore a suit. Uh, he put brill cream on his hair. He, he shaved, used aftershave. He wasn't that farm worker image that you see in the, in the posters. But he quit because the CSO, which was the largest organization in California advocating for the rights of Mexicans and Mexican origin people, they did not want to, uh, to work in the farm. And, and they were basing it on demographics. Around 1960, the, the Mexican population in the United States became urbanized. In other words, there were more people living in urban areas than in the rural areas. So from the CSO perspective, it made sense to continue working in the urban areas and not go out into the fields. But Chavez had this passion, uh, and because that's, that, that's the life he knew, and he understood how difficult and, and, and ugly that, that career path of being a migrant farm worker was. So he quit and decided to organize. So his wife had to be the one making money, taking care of the family while he tried to do this. And that's when they started coming around because his brother, got him a part-time job in, in the lumber yard there in, in California uh, just before he completely quit and went on the road. So it's a kind of insidious beginning, right? It starts with this, oh, we're going to offer you this Peace Corps job. And as part of that, we just need to vet you. And you kind of have an idea that it's happening, that maybe there's someone looking around. How does the surveillance of Chavez develop over time? Well, that's how it begins. Even though he told them he was not interested, and he told him that, that that's not what he cared about. 
and immediately they make conclusions. They decide that you are suspect, suspicious. You know, it's, it's not that you've already done something, it's that you're about to do something in their mind. That triggers uh, the surveillance. I'll just give you another example. Uh, Joe Molina was the only Mexican uh, origin person in the book depository where he was killed. He also happened to belong to the American GF Forum, which is a, an organization, the second largest civil rights organization in the Mexican-American community made up only of veterans of foreign wars, okay? So the, these are not beatniks, these are not hippies, these are not anti-war, these are solid core America, love it or leave it kind of fellas. Okay? Well, because he belonged to the GF Forum and because he was there when it happened, Hoover suspected he was a communist. And because he suspected that Molina was a communist, the American GF Forum became suspect. The surveillance of that organization began. Any, in any event that, that any organization has, somebody is bound to be in the audience or passing by or ho however it happens, who may belong to, to the Socialist Workers' Party or the Communist League or the Communist Party USA, the Young Socialist Alliance, you name it, you know, they could be there. So guilt by association is the other tactic that if, if someone is seen with you or with someone else, if they suspect, then you're suspect, suspected as well then cross-fertilization begins to occur. That's a term I use because when the FBI writes a report, they send it to other intelligence agencies, they send it to other military intelligence agencies, and they send it to other FBI offices as well. So the files begin to have a life of their own. You may have done something, before you know it, your file may be in New Orleans, San Antonio, Chicago, New York, with the 115th military group, with the service, it's all over the place. So you can't, you can't disguise this or, or erase it. First of all, you don't know it exists, uh, but, but they do. So anytime any connection is applied to you in any of these places, it all gets cross-fertilized again and reported. So that's how it begins. When he begins to calling for the strike, he joined the Filipinos who were already striking against the grape growers. Uh, and then, you know, the police are, the local police are called in to arrest pickets. And uh, so you get this question of why are you disrupting the economy? Kind of kind of what we're seeing today. I mean, are you for public health? Are you for the economy? Are you going to subscribe by the rules? Are you going to break the rules because you want to, the, to have the economy be the more important thing? So the same thing happened here. The, the Chavez was made the enemy uh, of, of the, the economy and food processing program. And that encouraged other unions to compete against him. Now, remember, the Teamsters and Nixon were in bed together from the beginning. Well, that's why the Teamsters were then, you know, sicked on, like if they were dogs, sicked on Chavez to destroy him. Uh, because that was part of the deal between Frank Fitzsimmons of the Teamsters and Richard Nixon. Besides, there was a big exchange of the political contribution money from the Teamsters to the Nixon campaign, and then in and a subsequent re-election campaign. So that seems to war goes on for several years. Okay? Every one of these incidents, uh, whether there's a court injunction not to pick it and then he breaks the injunction, uh, that leads to more surveillance, that leads to more arrests. He was arrested one time. <laughs> this, is, this is ridiculous. He was arrested one time because he got on an airplane since he was enjoined from getting anywhere near a field on the ground. He got a, a, an airplane with a loudspeaker from the loudspeaker, you know, sending the message down from the airplane. 
walk out of the fields and so on. So he was arrested and charged with disturbing the peace. <laughs> so things of that sort, you know, they're, they're ridiculous. Uh, but, but nevertheless, the point is there. Because think about this. If you're leading a union and you know, 100 people of yours get arrested in, in a picket line, don't you know that you're going to have 100 families, you, to do something about their, 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 their family member being locked up? And that they have no money and they have no job and so on. Or when you call a strike, you got to raise money to pay for these people. So it was a constant battle. Fight the police and all those who were trying to destroy him on the one hand. And then the FBI encouraging them because they would not invade the serious crimes he was alleging against the growers. When they tried to murder him, when they tried to assassinate him. Some of those files say, like the, the AFT files, alcohol, firearms, and tobacco, that they suspected that Chavez bombed his own offices because he wanted publicity. I mean, how ridiculous can you get? <laughs> You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Jose Angel Gutierrez, author of The Eagle Has Eyes, the FBI Surveillance of Cesar Estrada Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union of America, 1965 to 1975. You were talking about the sort of effect of the surveillance on Chavez's or labor organizing and his his work um, more broadly, the idea that, you know, as these things go on, you end up having to deal with all of the f folks who get in trouble because of what's happening to you. Could you talk about other ways that the surveillance disrupted organizing activities or made it more difficult to achieve the goals that Chavez had set out for himself? Well, sure. You know, the, the murders of farm workers, uh, there were several murders, and uh, none of them resulted in any kind of serious uh, a trial or conviction, none of them. Now, there were several assassination attempts. In, in fact, there was one fellow uh, who was paid by, by, by a government agency uh, to, serve, to disrupt some of the things that Chavez was doing, and some of the growers found out about it, and they offered him more money if he would kill Chavez. And he went to the Chavez people, have been paid <laughs> to, to kill you. Uh, so they, in turn, contacted the FBI and, and some of these pages. And they decided that this fella uh, was, was crazy. Then, you know, it was not true, even though the money that he said he got was in, in the house where he lived with his mother. And they decided, well, no, that's the mother's money, not his money. The record was pretty clear. These were serious uh, charges, and the people whose mission is to protect you from violence don't. You get to be very, very scared. So Chavez began moving away from his base. He stopped working out of the office there in Delano. Then he went to what he called, uh, you know, the the the, the keen the forty-acre project. Then he went to La Paz in the mountains. Chavez got further and further away from direct contact with the workers, very distrustful and, and, and kind of paranoid about all those people around him. For example, when he ended up being up at the, the mountain in La Paz, he had his own phone system, his own mail system. Uh, it was a huge compound, okay? Well, they were uh, threatening letters, and they called the, the postal inspectors, and they called the FBI, and they came. <laughs> And they went through every piece of the paper they could find and all kinds of things, ended up with all the fingerprints of all the Chavez out, but not the ones who sent the threatening letters. So, so you know, same thing, phone calls. 
So you end up bringing in the people to protect you and they end up doing harm with all this evidence that could be used in the future. Like having all these, these fingerprints. Now, on the, on the telephone, Chavez was uh, hospitalized. You know, he, he did himself a lot of tests that he would not eat for a number of days. And, but but it, it doesn't do you very much good to your body organs when you get past a day or two of fast. Those are, those are wholesome. Those are good. But not 30, not 40 days. So he ended up at the hospital. And uh, the telephone operator gets a call asking uh, where Mr. Chavez was. And, you know, the pronunciation and so on, they, they knew it was not a Mexican person. It sounded like it was not a friendly person. And they wanted to know where Chavez, what room he was in. So this astute operator tells the doctor, uh, I think we've got a problem. I think somebody's trying to find out, you know, where Chavez is. And that, that might be a security issue. The doctor himself moves Chavez to an undisclosed location and, and doesn't even tell the reception. And he, she, he tells the reception to call the police about these threatening calls. The police come. They ask, well, do you know who it was? No. Do you think, you know, well, then we can't investigate. It's anonymous. Here, other people who are not charged with an obligation of law enforcement have to protect Chavez from law enforcement <laughs> for the lack of it. And that you sort of show in the book that over time, that sort of scrutiny, the, the need to maintain that kind of level of paranoia and like care with what you're trying to do. It really contributed to his unraveling, didn't it? I believe so. You get lonely. Uh, well, that's one of the problems of a very powerful. They got no friends. They can't trust anybody. Uh, they can't uh, reveal their inner thoughts and, and, and strategies because then it, it gets all convoluted and, and turned against you. And he knew that, that there were people out to destroy him. So he, he withdrew and withdrew. Then he then met this individual who was doing some very good things with mental health and addicted people uh, with drugs. And he had this exercise called The Game, where for counseling purposes and for disclosure of, of inner secrets, a group of people would come together and tell things about each other, you know, what they like, what you did, what you didn't do, et cetera, et cetera, as a way to have therapy, to, to talk about things that bothered you because he wanted the strong teams of leadership uh, in, in, in the union, but he also was a very micromanaging kind of person. He even checked uh, how much a tire costs and how much money was being spent on stamps and that sort of thing. So he introduced the game to his, his top people, and that just destroyed any kind of confidence and loyalty and, and uh, affection that people had because it turned into uh, bitter personal fights. Uh, and just in, in you know, and rumor and scandal, it just didn't produce the results that was supposed to happen because of that. And he, Chavez himself, turned anti-rabid, anti-communist. Even though he was he was being accused of being the communist, he internalized that and started purging people who suspected of being communist in the union. And, you know, there's a very fine line as to when you advocate for better working conditions and socialism. Or, or minimum wage or, or worker-controlled uh, policymaking and decision-making. So he got used to bottle all that and started taking it out on people, like long-term associates and, and the, the lawyers that he had. He, he ran them off. 
Uh, and then he did his biggest, worst uh, decision ever by canceling the, the boycott committee uh, worldwide. Uh, you can see it the, the minute that he decided that they didn't need the boycott committee anymore. From then on, the union starts getting less and less contracts and almost uh, becomes irrelevant as, as where it is today. And did that decision to suspend the boycott committee have to do with the pressure from surveillance or the way in which boycotts led to police action? Well, who knows? You know, I mean, he didn't write a book to tell us, so we don't know. Uh, and there's also files missing. If you look at that title, the files that I received and Street was able to look at himself in the 1975. Now, since then, I have continued to pursue the release of additional documents, and I have that already done. I just don't have the documents in hand, but I'm going to get them. And as soon as I get them, I'm going to get busy working on, on that project to write a sequel, and maybe the answer's there. Because nobody knows why he decided to do that, and he didn't to anyone uh, why he did that either. Now, there's a lot of questions. Uh, for example, when he died, the, the widow did not want an autopsy. Well, we don't know why he died. There was no logical reason for him to die in his sleep that night. I mean, he was just going through another trial, which he had already gone through many other trials. Uh, he was not recovering fast. He had gone in a fast many days before, and then he just dies in his sleep. Well, that's a lot of unanswered questions, but we don't know because there was no autopsy. Mrs. Chavez went to work in the office one day and, and found some incriminating kind of love letters from some fans and volunteers and things. And that led to a family separation of her and, and, and Cesar for about seven or eight months. So let's suppose that like it happened with the allegations against Dr. King, the FBI started making allegations against Chavez. Well, we don't know because we don't have all the other files yet. <laughs> uh, and we don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it was a deal. You know, that if, if you stop this, we'll stop that. Because he did change all of a sudden. Uh, and he did start removing people and putting family members. So, you know, the UFW became uh, Chavez Inc. Uh, almost every department uh, of the union was run by a relative and still is. And started moving toward, like, real estate development? Everything. You you name it. The, the, everything is run now by some relative of Chavez. It's not, uh, it's not the, the worker-operated union as it once was supposed to be. So the FBI, the surveillance sort of had the desired effect to some degree. It's been it's been um, neutralized and made a part of a more familiar system. Well, yeah, you know, it stands to reason that if you can't trust anybody because of all the things that are happening to you, maybe you can trust your own family. Maybe. So that's not a surprise to why he would put his sons or daughters here and there. Uh, and then you see toward the end, he put a son-in-law uh, to run the union. And, and now I think for the first time, we have a farm worker woman heading up the UFW after uh, the son-in-law just retired here about a year or so ago. So, but all the uh, the credit, the development, the, the, the health services, the everything is run by uh, someone related to Chavez. Hmm. I think this is a good point to expand the conversation a little bit back out into the broad realm because surveillance is uh, is a particularly you know hot topic, as it were, as the coronavirus pandemic carries on. We're seeing talked about very blithely, like some of the most profound and intrusive 
and sophisticated kinds of surveillance technologies yet devised being you know foisted on whole populations what do you make of the current landscape of surveillance and do you have like advice for those of us who live in the jurisdiction of the US government and its agencies ha. well just be aware that everything we do now is is under scrutiny uh, i mentioned at the beginning of the interview that now we call it data valence in other words Back in the day, you knew when they were following you. You knew when someone was taking pictures of you. You knew when when there was a strength in the audience and you were giving a speech and they're recording, you know, and they're in a suit and they're recording what you're saying. So that's surveillance. That's actual physical following you, checking you, monitoring you. Now they don't have to do that. Uh, they, they, they let us self-report. You know, we get online, we text, we send uh, uh, photographs, uh, we... we put messages on, on email, you name it. Use credit cards, everything, everything is leaves a record. So all they gotta do is engage in collecting this metadata and then analyzing that for patterns and, and, and applying you know, specialized algorithms to determine by, by the words that are used, the, 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 the time frame, the people that are involved, these are the ones that they're wanting to track. So we're volunteering all our information to the government. That's why this thing is expanding exponentially uh, and, and, and creating more mistakes because you know, this is just not the way to do things, but, but that's how they're doing it. Uh, and that's what's happened today. So this is big business uh, and, and we have huge contractors making a lot of money, uh, supposedly under the guise of providing national security. Now, the most current dangerous event is, is this going on with um, Peter Thiel. Uh, Peter Thiel is, is a very successful business person from Germany who got naturalized here in the U.S. He's one of uh, Trump's biggest supporters. He's also the that invented PayPal and then created uh, Palantir, which is an intelligence surveillance private contractor. He has just received the huge contract to do contact tracing. Now think about this. <laughs> It seems very benign and, and very useful that we know who you talked to and who you went to with and you know who else you visited and so on. But all of these are records of people. And and I'm sure that they're not just going to ask, uh, did you talk to so-and-so? They might ask, well, what did you talk about? <laughs> and how long did you talk about? Uh, you know, did you promise to talk again? And where did this take place? It, it, it can just branch out everywhere. But that's who has it. And this fellow is, in my opinion, uh, a very, very uh, uh, extreme right uh, libertarian kind of fellow. He's also got the U.S. citizenship now because he's from Germany. And he also bought New Zealand citizenship. Uh, and he's a multi-billionaire. He also recommended the Trump nominating speech when Trump uh, was nominated. And he's given millions of dollars to Trump in political campaigns. And is now going to have information about our infection status uh, at the ready for use that, that is uh, undetermined at the current time. That's correct. That's who got the contract. Another uh, piece of technology you write about in the book, and one of the statistics that really, it shouldn't have shocked me, but it does, is that one in two of us have our faces in a facial recognition database. Yes. And that 18 states share these databases with the federal government, and there's no regulation at all about how they can be used or for what? That's correct. That's correct. And you can see this when you go uh, to the bank or when you go to a grocery store or when you cross a border. 
uh, or you go through an airport that uh, you see the little camera goes off I and mean, they already got your face when you go shopping uh, this is used for for marketing you know when when shopping and you look at the shelves they, they they time how much time you spend looking at the top shelf the middle shelf the bottom shelf uh, then they go and see well what's on the shelf what colors you know what shapes uh, what products and they know they're looking at your eyes, your your voice, everything. It's sort of distressing, and it, and it reminds me of a, a earlier moments in the conversation where we were talking about Chavez needing to, you know, call the police in order to help him with real, actual criminal problems, and then ends up being surveilled. Like it, that we get surveillances sold to us in the same way. Like, well, we can better customize your shopping experience by watching how you shop and seeing what you look at and providing you with recommendations. And then at the turn of a switch, it can be weaponized. How does one, I mean, I think the same is true of technology in terms of like thinking about the kind of organizing work that Chavez was doing, like how, how much different would the revolution have looked if you could use the communication power of the internet to collect and organize people, and then it can be turned back against you just as easily. How do we proceed? What do we do in this environment in the face of all of this? Important thing is to be aware that it exists. You know, Chavez was was very, very competent and capable in the beginning curve of the use of the internet. You know, he had a tremendous email list, a tremendous uh, list of, of donors. Uh, so his fundraising machine was just incredible based on the technology that was emerging. Uh, and it's even more so now. And, and you look, we, we talked about uh, Peter Thiel. Now, he did sell PayPal to, to another conglomerate, but he still got stock. You look at every progressive uh, candidate out there or organization, and, and they're all asking for money. <laughs> Do it next time you look at one of those in, in your own webpage or your own email. And when you click down to the donation part, you'll see PayPal. So how incongruent is this? The very progressive causes and politicians are going right back and handing money to, to Peter Thiel and his associates or those who succeeded him in PayPal, because I said, he did sell the company, but he still got stock. <laughs> it, it's just incredible to me. So, so you need to know that this is going on and you need to take steps to avoid that. I will not donate to anybody. And I write to them and I say, until you get these people out of here, I'm not sending a dollar because I'm not, I'm not feeding the animal. The other thing is, for example, the Zapatistas, you're, I'm sure you remember who they were. Uh, they, they, uh, they, at the height of, of uh, the scrutiny about them, and, and this was when the internet was already pretty prevalent everywhere, uh, they devised a system where they would write, uh, I would write uh, you know, an email to you, let's say, uh, and, and we, since we were the Zapatistas, we knew what our password was and we knew what our you know, a name was, uh, so we wouldn't send it. You know, you knew that on, say, on, on, on Thursday afternoons at one o'clock, instead of the podcast, you're going to check the email, you're going to use the Zapatista uh, name, and then you're going to use the password that we all know what it is, read the draft, and just leave it there. As long as you don't send the draft, the government can't get it, because it's not going anywhere. <laughs> now, if the Zapatistas out of the Chiapas jungle can figure that out, <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's other ways, you know, that, that, that we could avoid uh, some of the things. The best way is, you know, don't use social media. Uh, don't establish a presence. Uh, communicate in other ways uh, that are still possible. A lot of things you can do once you know and once you know how they're doing it to avoid uh, some of these things. Now, you can't avoid it all. Uh, so the best thing is just not do anything 
uh, illegal to begin with. Uh, don't get don't get considered for any federal job, <laughs> and, and and try to be below the the radar. Yeah, I think that's good advice, and it is kind of heartening that there there are still workarounds and ways to find um, to use you know to use the technology to your advantage. Um, I th we're just about out of time, Jose. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where the work is going. You mentioned a couple times the outstanding um, freedom of information requests, a garage full of FBI files. What have you been working on recently, and what can we expect from you in the future? Well, you know, you've mentioned that Tracking King Tiger book, which is the same thing, uh, kind of book as the Chavez book, but it's all about the, the land recovery movement leader, Reyes Lopez Tiguerina out of New Mexico, and how they destroyed him. Now, he, he died a natural death, of, and, but he was imprisoned and he was destroyed in many of the activities that he tried to do. Uh, so that's the other book that's out there by Michigan State University Press. Now, since then, I've continued to write because it dawned on me uh, that, that I'm immortal. I looked at the boxes in the garage and said, boy, at this pace, one book every few years on a person, I'm going to die and these boxes are still going to be here. I've now produced the two multi-chapter books featuring six to seven individuals, all of which, all our FBI files, two, two organizations and an event. When I mentioned Joe Molina, uh, that's the GI Forum, and, uh, and I'm writing a, a third one at this point, which is not under contract. I'm just trying to get it done. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm writing multi-chapter books on several people, on two organizations, and one event. Uh, as a way to show that the uh, Mexican orange people in the United States are still considered a historic enemy. And that's why they continue the surveillance because it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, they'll watch you. I think it's super important work that you're doing. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that it continues to flourish before we go. I should say, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been a really enlightening conversation. And as I say, I think that the, the degree to which you've been able to show, you know, how prevalent this is and how, targeted it is at Mexican origin people and other uh, folks working for social justice is, is just astonishing and super important. So thank you. Thank you. May I add one comment? Yeah, sure. One of the big problems uh, that I have against the Social Science Academy is that these are all hidden histories that are not being reported by them. We cannot call ourselves scholars in, in history and political science. Don't look at what the government is doing against us as part of the history. These hidden histories need to be brought out into the open. Otherwise, we keep continuing to say, this leader was short on this skill or that skill. That may not be the case. It may be that the government was helping to destroy that person. Yeah, that is precisely what you're doing in The Eagle Has Eyes and the other books from MSU Press is um, revealing some of that hidden history. Thanks for the podcast. Jose Angel Gutierrez's book, The Eagle Has Eyes, The FBI Surveillance of Cesar Estrada Chavez of the United Farm Workers Union of America, 1965 through 1975, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press Podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Madi Hagos, Dante Smith, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.